everything that I talk about that me and my teammates stand for is nothing that you've seen on the media, nothing that you've seen on TV. And we're going to show you exactly who we are and what we stand for. I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best. Welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. I am your host, Pat Costello, the co-founder and principal at Evolve MGA. Our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best. My guest today is an incredible example of perseverance, dedication, and grit, both in the insurance world and outside the insurance world. He played on the Duke lacrosse team the year after three players were falsely accused of rape. While experiencing some of the remnants of the stigma associated with the criminal case, he won a NCAA championship in 2010. That same year, a viral PowerPoint was released by a Duke student that detailed all of her sexual interactions during her time in school that received national attention. His name and photos were included on the list. Now, instead of dwelling on a blemished reputation and the loss of an internship, he doubled down on lacrosse, signing with a major league lacrosse team and winning a championship in 2015. After reaching the pinnacle of the sport, he decided to put the lacrosse stick down and enter the business world with his dad at Brady Risk Management in Long Island. He developed a strong niche in the hospitality space and built a book of about $3 million in under five years. As you can imagine, COVID-19 hit his clients, his income, and his value proposition extremely hard. Instead of accepting the potential collapse of his organization, he fought hard to pivot, develop new niches, and establish new revenue streams. In the last three months, they've bound over $3 million in premium. My guest today is Sean Brady Jr. Sean and I discussed the Duke lacrosse scandal and his experience dealing with the fallout, winning an NCAA championship, his resolve to persevere through the release of the viral PowerPoint, growing Brady risk management, and successfully fighting through COVID-19 by developing new niches. Without further ado, here's Sean. Sean, welcome to the Evolve Broker Podcast. Hey, Pat, thanks for having me. It's, uh, I'm, I'm really glad we could finally do it, and I will just dive right in. Uh, you started playing lacrosse for Duke in 2007, and that was one year after one of the biggest scandals in Duke history in arguably sports history. And a lot of people don't necessarily know what happened in that specific scandal. Can you break down the Duke lacrosse scandal for the folks that don't know what it is? Yeah, sure. Um, just for some historical context, basically, uh, the Duke lacrosse case was a widely reported 2006 criminal case uh, in Durham, North Carolina, obviously based around Duke University, in which three members of the men's Duke lacrosse team were accused of rape. It highlighted a bunch of different social issues that the media took advantage of, more or less. Uh, it spoke about everything from racism to sexual violence to media bias to due process through basically meet the, the kangaroo court that is the media. And it ultimately led to the resignation and disbarment of the lead prosecutor, District Attorney Mike Nifong, who did everything from tamper, to evi tamper with evidence to destroy it, to put on basically a media campaign 
alienating the character of all three of the accused and the entire Duke program. And it was all based on a lie. If you guys ever have a chance, look at the ESPN 30 for 30. I think that is the absolute best representation of the series of events that played out into what we refer to as the Duke lacrosse scandal. One of the craziest 30 for 30s that I've ever seen, in my opinion, the the Duke lacrosse scandal and the Chris Heron documentary where he is, um, you know, essentially playing for the Celtics and he has like a hardcore drug addiction. Those are the two wildest 30 for 30s I've ever seen. Um, but Sean, in your personal experience, when that scandal went down, had you already committed to play for Duke? Yeah. So at that time, I think I was either number two or number three goalie recruit in the country. And, you know, looking at different schools, trying to feel it out. Um, uh, at the time, I was talking to Coach Pressler and Coach Kevin Cassis, one of my first interactions with Duke. And those were, unfortunately, two more victims of this whole scandal. Uh, Coach Pressler is ostensibly forced to resign. You know, he ended up back on his feet at Bryant University and did a great job with that program. And he became a New York Times bestselling author. However, what those guys went through, I couldn't even imagine. And I would want no part of, and I definitely wouldn't want my son to go through. Mm -hmm. These guys were some of the most stand-up guys, especially Kevin Cassis, who was a local hero here on Long Island from his time at Comswag with everything from football to lacrosse. The guy was just a legend and eventually became the captain of the USA team. So I knew who he was beforehand. And the way those two gentlemen handled themselves throughout this crisis spoke volumes to me, even as a young guy. And I was thrilled to be able to have the opportunity to commit to a school like Duke. However, I committed and both guys left. Uh, for understandable reasons. Ended up with Coach John Donowski, another great guy and uh, a good mentor. And him and Ron Caputo became somewhat fathers to me during my first season at Duke. Um, But it was a scary time. Me and my family, we had to sit down and really think about, hey, all this going on, we're not sure if it's going to be cleared up. It's not a matter of whether we thought they were innocent or not. Seeing the character of the coaches told me everything I needed to know. And then eventually I was able to actually see it with my own eyes when I took my visits on campus. But I, you know what? These guys, I couldn't imagine what they've been through. But you would never know when you would see them going through this because to them, they just knew their next, their next task at hand. Wow. They were so goal-orientated and so focused, whether that was getting the truth out or winning a championship. These guys were who you want your kid to be around and who you want to be as a young man growing into a young adult. That's really impressive. Sean, how did yeah. the scandal itself affect your experience? So you get to Duke. How did it affect you in your um, years when you were at Duke? In a way, at least from my personal experience, I got the aftermath. And the aftermath of the exoneration of the three gentlemen that were wrongfully accused. Those guys went through hell. What I went through was just a wake of that that crazy boat driving by that was driven by everything, all the adversity that they were dealing with. And I still felt the heat because, you know, just to bring up a story, one of one of my freshman year was the first couple of weeks that we were all at Duke University 
you know, I, my recruiting class specifically had a lot of Long Island guys. We're all slapping each other on the chest. Like, look at this. Can't believe we made it so fired up that we're there. But when we got there, we had a very serious meeting with our coaches who lived through this whole ordeal, the aftermath and learned how to redevelop themselves as role models, leaders, and people that had gone through this and know what the public reaction could be to even the smallest of behavioral fractions. So it was like living under a microscope for these guys. And they, they relayed that to us emphatically that, Hey, you guys want to go have a good time, go to a party school. We're coming here to do two things, go to school and play lacrosse. Now I'm that message might've gotten a little lost on me, but everybody else on the team really, really took it to heart. And it was so impressive to be a part of that group. Now, where I'm going with this is that these guys basically gave us a set of instructions in that first meeting. Everything from, you know, if you're drinking underage, you will be punished. If you are out late before a game day, you will be punished. It's really putting a hammer down and setting a strict outline of discipline. Mm -hmm. One of those things was a very small thing that, you know, everybody is a freshman who forgets to do their laundry from time to time throws out the window, which was never don't wear your team issued gear off campus. And it actually, I believe it came from the upperclassmen who had gone through a couple of incidents with some locals during the police investigation before the exoneration of the three players. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds cool and everything. But, uh, you know, this, this fresh Nike gear looks great. <laughs> Plus, you know, I was, I was a little Irish guy when I first got there, I was maybe 170 pounds soaking wet and, I had to get the attention of the upper class and girls somehow. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I wore it around everywhere. And one late night after uh, picking up some Domino's pizzas for uh, the boys back at the dorm room freshman year, um, I ran into a gentleman who had a few too many drinks, we'll call it, at a BP gas station in Durham, North Carolina. He sees me wearing the shirt. He's about to pay for something. You would have thought this guy saw a ghost. Like I said, the guy was intoxicated, but he starts letting me have it. He called me everything from, you know, a rapist to a racist to, you know, talking about my mother, which I didn't appreciate either. Long story short, I felt the need to really stand up for my teammates and verbally gave it right back to the guy. And I ended up in the freezer section getting my face kicked in. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, I laugh about it now, but back then it was definitely scary. And that was just a very small example of probably what I'd imagine and what I heard a lot of these Duke guys kind of went through. If it wasn't physical, it was definitely from verbal just attacks, whether that was from your peers in the student body or it's from the, the faculty itself. There were there's a group, they call it the group of 88. It was 88 professors who took out an ad and the Chronicle, which was the Duke's uh, campus newspaper, basically calling for the cancellation of the Duke lacrosse program and the expulsion of the players. I'm paraphrasing here, but long story short, a lot of these professors felt like they were completely in the right. Even after the exoneration came out of the three players, innocence is proven and everybody's just trying to go about with their life again. There was a, there's been a few examples of these professors still holding a grudge, still looking at them as examples of white privilege, of 
of racism in this country, of and Sean, this, misogynistic behavior. This is this is even after that it was they this were is even after. innocent. Yeah, there's there's an example. I know that the there's a Long Island family, the Dowd family is incredible across family and even better from a character standpoint. Um, their son, who played on the Duke lacrosse team, really struggled with one of his professors who had it out for him simply for the fact that he was a member of the Duke lacrosse team during the investigation. I can't. And I, it's that's something I personally didn't have to deal with during my time there. However, <laughs> I, I really, even when I was there and I was hear, hearing him tell the story or hearing him back on Long Island tell the story, it still rattles me because when you're in college, you are not a, a, we know we all fancy ourselves adults as soon as we turn 18, but you are ostensibly a big little kid when you're 18, 19, 20 totally. years old, you are becoming the adult that you're meant to become in post-college life. How detrimental that could be is, is insane. Trust in faculty when you're at a school, that's already tough enough. Like a lot of the guys on the Duke lacrosse team, you know, that year, um, my year were, you know, just Long Island guys coming from blue collar families. Uh, some of us, you know, maybe not the case. Some of them came from, you know, some wealth and success, but there was a lot of guys that did not come from that, that worked for everything that they got. And they were thrown into the same trenches as, as murderers, as rapists. And in the same category, when the media is speaking, every time they turn on the TV, every time, they walk on campus. Their confrontations with their their peers on campus is nothing less than hateful, and it's not because of them. It's because of the narrative created not only by the media but the school itself really ran for cover and gave the Duke the Durham Police Department carte blanche with their lacrosse students. It was something that they, you know, they're raiding lacrosse, they're raiding lacrosse players' dorms, taking down cartoon drawings, and keeping it as evidence. Ultimately, from my perspective, it gave me a perspective that made me appreciate and respect those upperclassmen, especially the fifth years who were granted late, that fifth year of eligibility to come back and play the senior year that was stolen from them. The way they handled themselves, the way they just jumped right on the opportunity without even thinking like, hey, maybe I might not want to be there anymore. Maybe Duke's not a safe place for me anymore. Maybe I'm not welcome. They just said kind of F that. I'm finishing what I started and I'm proving to the world that everything that I talk about that me and my teammates stand for is nothing that you've seen on the media, nothing that you've seen on TV. And we're going to show you exactly who we are and what we stand for. That was really the most impressive part to me. But I could have done without the punch in the face at the BP station. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's really cool to hear. And and I know you weren't there exactly when it happened, but you were part of the comeback story. And I think this is a perfect transition because that happened in 2007. In 2010, you guys win the NCAA championship. What was that like? What was it like to win the NCAA championship? It's the, I got the, the one story for me that really sticks out, like, or memory, I should say, is the ring ceremony. I'm sitting in this auditorium at, on, on campus, you know, everybody's dressed in their Sunday's best. 
and we, you know, all the rings are being given out. And I think it was just, it was kind of the culmination of everything. You know, when you win a big game like that, or, you know, there's so much adrenaline and so much preparation that goes into it. I, you know, like even watching LeBron win the champion, the NBA finals, he puts so much preparation, so much time and effort into winning that game. It's hard to almost react to something like that. When you have a guy like that, that's really been just tunnel vision for months, almost a full calendar year. And now he's got to pick his head up. Yeah. That I think every, all of my teammates picked their heads up when I was sitting in there and everybody was collecting their rings because that was the final moment. You have the trophy uh, presentation, you have the party afterwards, and then months later you have the ring presentation. That was the real trophy moment for these guys and even the younger guys who really got behind the older guys and bought into the system and really said, hey, I love this culture. I love these guys. I love this team. But the amount of perseverance just for internal fortitude that these guys showed by finishing what they started, despite everything that they've been through and all the opportunities to jump ship and still sticking by, side by side with their brothers, with the program, and to see that award in their face was something I'll never forget. It was just, uh, it, it was really a culmination of so many different things from sacrifice to love for one another to just the epitome of perseverance through the utmost adversity. Perseverance and a comeback story, I think are going to be the themes that go along with a lot of the, the um, items that we talk about in this conversation. And that 2010 w was an interesting year for you, Sean, because obviously you get the glory, you get the comeback for winning the NCAA championship. But in 2010, a viral PowerPoint was released and basically it was a female Duke student who had detailed all of her sexual interactions for, <laughs> it seems, it sounds like almost the whole time she was at school uh, in a PowerPoint that, uh, like I said, went viral and went across the nation. Can you talk about um, how you felt and how you got through it when you found out that your information um, and you were a part of the information that was in that PowerPoint. Well, mom, I hope you're not, you're watching. <laughs> I hope you're not watching. Uh, so, I mean, it was crazy, you know, uh, when did I find out? I was, I think I was sitting on my buddy's couch at his place after practice, just licking my wounds, my ice and my bruises and just getting ready for uh, the cycle of classes that was coming up in the second half of the day. And all of a sudden I start getting texts, not from people at Duke, but from people at University of Virginia in Charlottesville, UVA. Just your friends. And yeah, but it's, I'm hearing from people that I know at UVA that I haven't heard from in like year, two years, three years. And all of a sudden my phone's blowing up and it's, it's the type of thing. It's like, almost like when it's your birthday, you're getting that slew of text messages. <laughs> I was like, this can't be right because there's nothing exciting that's happened in my life in the last, last month or so. So <laughs> what's going on? What happened? Kind of who died? <laughs> and all of a sudden I start to read the text messages and it's everybody kind of like 
either like laughing or be like, oh my God, this is insane. I can't believe this. And I'm like, wait, what are you guys talking about? Like, what are you referring to? And all of a sudden they start sending links. And I started opening up and that's the first time I read it. First thing I did was I just went into my room, didn't talk to anybody, read through the whole thing, even my teammates, and basically started to panic. So I started to call my teammates, especially my classmates, that were really, uh, that were also on it, that were, I knew would be really affected by it. So I called in, I'm like, dude, what do we do? What is this shit? How many people have seen this? And in Sean, how, like, how, how bad is the damage? Was it, was it forwarded to you via email or was it on the internet? How did you eventually find it was, it was, it was on the internet. On the internet. So there was like, uh, it might've been juicy campus or campus gossip picked it up. Barstool sports might've picked it up. There's some like pretty well-named websites, but they're all catered towards college kids and young professionals. Um, and so it was all very relevant. All the people, their audience is, is my friend group and the people I'm around on a day-to-day -day basis. So they couldn't have picked a more relevant demographic to really throw this thing out to which obviously sucked for us. But um, so the best, the next thing that happened was I'm reading this thing. I call my teammates. We agree to really just kind of meet together. We call some of the baseball guys that are on it. They come and meet us. We call some of the football guys that are on it. They come to lacrosse house and meet. And, you know, we're all very nervous because we're very conscious of everything that happened in 2006. And here we go. You see Duke lacrosse, or just Duke in general, and then sex scandal. So we're all freaking out. We're waiting for a call from all of our respective coaches, trying to figure out how to handle this. One guy's talking about, my parents are gonna sue them. They're gonna take this all off the internet. Most of us were a little more realistic and we were just like, well, there goes my internship. <laughs> but we ended, up, um, we ended up coming to basically stay in touch together. Our parents ended up talking. There wasn't a whole lot we could do mm -hmm. to get it down because it was already so far out there. 60 Minutes does this uh, whole thing on it. Fox News picks it up. They're talking about it. And I have, so I kind of panicked a little bit. I, I start calling my, you know, I'm like, I call my dad, I'd hang up. I call my dad, I'd hang up because I didn't know what to tell him. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of freaking out because I'm reading through this thing. And it's like, this girl's talking about how I have an Australian accent. I told this girl, you know, I was raised by a gang of aboriginals. They were basically a surf gang. Like, this thing is a mess. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> and I don't even remember half of this. I was like a friend. I was like 19, 20 years old in college. And so finally, I text my brother and sister. I'm like, yo, just make sure mom and dad don't see this. I don't know what you can do, but if you can do something, do your best. Then finally work up the courage, play through the, all the horrible worries and hypothetical situations that I think are gonna play out in my head, really working myself up, finally getting ready to call my dad. My girlfriend at the time, long distance girlfriend calls, and she just unleashes on me. She thought this whole thing happened <laughs> when we were still dating. She absolutely torches me, oh, no. breaks up with me, breaks up with me, and then hangs up the phone. So at that point, I was like, all right, well, that was pretty bad. So I think I'm ready for this call. Call my dad, and I am so worried, Pat. I think this guy's going to disown me. He's going to ask about the internships, which I'm unsure of. It's just not going to be a phone call that I want to have with my dad. And I go, Dad, we got to talk. He goes, yeah. 
He goes, what do you want to talk about? I go, well, there's this thing out. He goes, what thing? I go, there's kind of a PowerPoint. He goes, you do a class project? <laughs> I go, well, I did it. A girl did. And he goes, oh, huh, okay, go on. I'm like, well, she wrote a PowerPoint about guys she had slept with at Duke, and I'm on it, and it's all over the fucking internet now. <laughs> or it's all over the internet now. And he goes, okay. I'm like, well, I, I don't think it's good because I think it's like we, we got like news reporters calling us. Like they're looking for interviews. We're not trying to talk to them, but it's going to get picked up either way. And this, this is coming out and it doesn't look good for us. We might get kicked off the team. We might get our internships it, like just wiped off the board. And he goes, yeah, well, you know, unfortunately I do know what you're talking about. I just got one question for you and my heart sunk. <laughs> And I go, yeah, what, what is it, dad? And he goes, how'd you let Howell beat you? <laughs> and Howell, Howell was my best friend who I committed to Duke with from Huntington High School. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, he really handled it the right way so, and had the, the, a very epic response. <laughs> so he already knew about it. Yeah, he had already read about it. A couple of dads had reached out to him just the way my friends reached out to me when they first read it. And... Uh, yeah, he was good, but he's like, don't worry, your mother lost her tablet this week. <laughs> meaning, <laughs> meaning he took it. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah, legendary move, man, legendary move. <laughs> so it, to clarify, did people actually lose internships because of the PowerPoint? Oh, 100%, yeah, 100%. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm not going to name names, but uh, they, you know, two of my classmates, so guys in my recruiting class, specifically. Um, yeah, it was, you know, now I'm able to laugh about it. I don't know if I'm laughing because I'm nervous or if it's because now I'm actually able to laugh about it. But and back then it was like our worlds were crashing down around us, but ended up being, uh, you know, just kind of a flash in the pan news story. Um, thank God. <laughs> yeah. So you go back on campus did you feel like people were treating you differently because of the PowerPoint? Oh, 100% at first. I mean, you had, and it's like, especially like some of my really good girlfriends, I mean, they had my back, but you know, there, there were some, you know, girls I was friendly with that were like, you know, looked at me like I was a monster for the first week that it came out. And then they realized the more reporting that went on it, uh, that, you know, occurred on the actual PowerPoint, we had a few people like Megan Kelly, um, formerly, um, she was on Fox News at the time, like kind of stand up and defend us and defend the girl as well, who was also getting some criticism for uh, all the backlash she received for the PowerPoint. Um, yeah, and I think we should also, we should just clarify that it, it, it was national news. Right? Oh, it was very much so. I couldn't run from it for, for a while. However, like I said, we did have some pretty poignant um, you know, news personalities that did stick up for us. So that made this one, that made this scandal comparison to the 2006 scandal that the upperclassmen went through look like cupcakes. <laughs> well, Sean, you are one of the most positive people that I know, and I can only imagine how the situation went down, but I'm sure it would have been very easy for someone to really dwell on the negative elements of the situation. Is there anything that you did to get through uh, the tougher times associated with this PowerPoint? Yeah. 
Um, it was just during that period in general. Um, the, the, this whole PowerPoint really kind of came at a time of great, not to use this like uh, I'm on an e-Hollywood story, but it came at a time of great like personal growth. It really, I was trying to figure my life out next step, which was why I was talking to internship, you know, you know, interviewing for internships. And this really couldn't came at a worse time because I was trying to set that next step or next chapter of my life after college up. And this kind of threw a monkey wrench in it a little bit. Uh, but I, I will say the guys on the team, we they just like in typical fashion, just like in 2006, 2007, all the years to follow just rallied around one another. Even our coaches, you know, they <laughs> they had a funny way of just like comforting us. They basically made a, a parody between, you know, talking to us. They're like, you know, when your wife looks at you, do you want her to see a beat up radio or a brand new one? <laughs> like a brand new one. We want her to be excited about her radio. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, well, you know what? This PowerPoint kind of makes you look like a shitty radio. <laughs> he goes, but what you can control moving forward are your actions moving forward. So just be the best man you can be moving forward. <laughs> and, and hopefully there'll be no more PowerPoints. <laughs> Well, that's a very Italian guy from Long Island. He couldn't have put it any more eloquently, though. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, (laughs) but we really, really, uh, you know, even guys like there's one individual who really kind of uh, made a point to reach out to me and the other guys that were kind of beat up by being involved in this whole scandal, especially after, like I said before, the everything the program went through in 2006 and that was Tony McDevitt who really fucking reached out to us and reassured us, told us that this is ultimately, we're going to look back on this and laugh. And how true is that? I mean, we're laughing about it right now. <laughs> the guy nailed it. Um, but he also, he had some other funny uh, things to share with us that probably are best left off the podcast. <laughs> that sounds yeah. good. That sounds good. Well, I mean, talk about yeah. another comeback story. So after you finish your time at Duke, you enter the professional uh, ranks of lacrosse for the Long Island Lizards. And in 2015, you end up winning a professional lacrosse championship. Can you tell us about winning uh, in the professional ranks for lacrosse? Yeah, that was absolutely uh, a dream come true for me. Like, Nine-year-old Sean Brady was ecstatic that day because that was such a dream come true. When, you know, I grew up on Long Island, so lacrosse is king. It's almost like football in Texas or Florida. It's just, you know, it's, it's life here. So, I, you know, I was, as soon as I was born, I'm sure my dad had a lacrosse stick in my cradle. So for me to win, especially with, I mean, we were the New York Lizards at that time, but originally the team was known as the Long Island Lizards. So I grew up going to all of those games at Hofstra, at Mitchell Field, and I idolized these guys. They were gods to me. So to be able to wear that uniform, win the cup, and then have my dad there with me in Atlanta when we did win that cup, uh, that was just a dream come true. I, I really felt like a little kid, but I felt like a little kid every time I put that Lizards jersey on. 
lacrosse when I, and don't get me wrong. I had fun playing lacrosse in college, but when I got to the professional level, it, I really felt like a kid again. It was because everybody was there. Everybody that was on that team was the man in their respective center of influence from where they came from, from whatever team they came from, whatever college, they were the man to be a part of that group. And a lot of us knew each other. We grew up on Long Island playing lacrosse together or against each other or played against each other or with each other in college. So we all knew each other. The chemistry was insane. And it was a very special moment. But like I said, like, uh, despite the cast of characters that I had a blast with playing with, play, sharing that moment with my old man and hosting uh, you know, our version of, this, of the Stanley Cup, which was the Steinfeld Cup, was something I will absolutely never forget, um, especially when I was you know, handing it off to him. He came down on the field, and that was just a culmination of all the hard work, all the sacrifice for him, all those long weekends driving out of state with three kids in the back of a Suburban, and uh, all the law, you know, all the practices after he finishes work and I'm done with school, coaching us, all of my training sessions, all the blood, sweat, and tears over the last 25 years culminated into that one moment of us hosting the cup together and uh, all partying in Atlanta together after that night. <laughs> <laughs> so did you get a second ring? <laughs> I did not get a second ring with the Lizards. Oh, they don't give the, oh, I, wow. Yeah. Oh no, no, I got a, no, I did get a second ring. Yeah. Okay. I only won one. I only won one championship professionally though. I was going to yeah. say you, you got a, uh, a jewelry <laughs> box. I I'm sure you must have a jewelry He's got, box. I got one from high school, one from college and one from, uh, one from professional. Wow. And, and if only Brady Riss gave out rings, I'm sure. Uh, oh my God. No, I, I might spoil myself. <laughs> so I have to ask, What's better, winning a NCAA championship or winning a professional championship? For me personally, I got to say, the, for the Lizards, the principal owners of the New York Lizards at that time were multimillionaires. I think one guy might have even been a billionaire. The after party is just inherently with that type of lineup of who's going to be throwing the party for you, your host. <laughs> it's just going to infinitely be better. It's going to be so much better than getting on your Greyhound team bus and then driving straight to your local college bar. You know, <laughs> we went to like dinner at catch, you know, party of one Oak. Uh -huh. <laughs> These guys just really treated us like, uh, like princes. That's amazing. So, uh, it was absolutely insane. And I do have to say something cause we've both been in Atlanta together uh -huh. was we went to the Ivy right after the game in Buckhead County. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. I on. Guys were still wearing their game shorts. It was it was really fun. Yeah. But uh, if I had to choose one, that's what I'm going with. <laughs> well, we just opened for Evolve in Atlanta office, and so I'm have to educate our, our young bucks in that office on the Ivy and uh, yeah. And we'd be should happy be going. to do a social tutorial. <laughs> we'll we'll have to get that on the books. Uh, <laughs> and, and Sean, honestly, from my perspective. I'm pretty naive to the lacrosse world just because where I grew up, no one, no one was really playing it as a kid. I didn't realize how intense it is. Um, and at one point you ran me through a laundry list of ridiculous injuries that you've experienced. Can you walk the audience through the injuries you experienced while playing lacrosse? Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of repetitive injuries, meaning a lot of the same, you know, kind of same shit. So 
uh, getting your knees drained. Uh, you know, you get hematomas like on a daily basis when you play goalie. Uh, give you an idea. Equipment I wore as a lacrosse goalie was a helmet, a chest protector, gloves, a jock, and cleats. That's it. So if you're t- and you're taking everybody at that level, even at Duke, everybody's shooting 95 plus or at least 90 plus with a round rubber, ostensibly a hockey puck, but in a sphere shape. Now they could be shooting from two yards out to 10 yards to 15 or 20. But either way, that thing hurts when it hits you. You learn from a very young age as a goalie to save the ball with your stick, just out of self-defense. <laughs> yeah. uh, but getting your knees drained, stitched up. I've had everything from my throat guard crack in half and impale me right above my collarbone. Oh. I've had the ball come through my face mask and fracture my orbital bone. Oh. I've had every finger, both thumbs fractured and broken most of my toes same thing um torn both halves of my uh, my labrum rotator cuff hip labrum um the stitches so many stitches <laughs> i have i have nightmares about sutures <laughs> i i had no idea that lacrosse is so intense and so uh it speaks to the uh the savagery of, of the sport, which is pretty cool. And I think it, uh, I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize how intense it actually is, especially from the goalie position. Yeah. Well, also the other cool part about lacrosse is that it used to be a pre-war ceremony. So for the, for the native Americans and, uh, I forget, I'm blanking on which tribe it was, but, uh, one of them, their word for lacrosse ostensibly translated into little brother of war. So basically, give you a little context on that so it doesn't seem that abstract, is if there was two warring villages, whether it's in the same clan or it was two clans going against each other and they both recognized the cross as a pre-war ritual, they'd set up these fields miles apart. Their heads could be anything from balled up cat gut to skulls. And they would take the best of their best and compete against each other. And it was a ritual. It was just something they did before they went to war together. People, it wasn't uncommon for a person to die during the course of the game and they oh could go days. <laughs> That's crazy. So I was pretty spot on yeah. when I said savagery. Oh yeah. It's a hundred percent. They picked their best warriors. So when they played the game of lacrosse, so it was all the guys that could run fast, basically the hunting, the hunting crowd uh-huh. of the tribe who were also the warriors. Damn. So it was, uh, it made for, I'm sure a very, I would love to go back, just be a fly on a, well, I guess a tree back then <laughs> and watch and watch one of those games because I couldn't even imagine what would happen there. <laughs> That's super cool. I had no idea about the history. Yeah. yeah. So Sean, you, you were at the pinnacle of the lacrosse world. You decide to hang up the stick and you decide to go in the business world. Can you tell me a little bit about what got you excited about getting into the insurance industry and specifically joining the family business, Brady Risk Management? Yeah, for me, um, you know, I obviously love lacrosse, but, you know, lacrosse is, (laughs) professional lacrosse, it's not at the level of the NFL. It's still in its infancy. And my good buddy, Paul Rabel, he's doing a great job. 
with the PLL and bringing professional across the next level, which will inherently bring the sport to new heights overall on all different age levels and platforms. But when I was playing, I was making $750 a game after taxes. So you're not getting rich off your game check. A lot of us, it's like, you know, it's like I always joke around when I see, like if when I have my kid and he asks me about this, what am I going to tell him? Like, yes, I was a champion. I played during what is now considered the, the, the pre-vlog era. <laughs> you know, there was maybe, we played during a, a purer time when there's about 80 fans, in the sta- uh, 80 fans in the stands, half of which were family and friends. And you made just enough per game to cover your bar, your bar tab. It's like, it's like the NFL players of the 50s. Yeah, all, this, all those guys had all those crazy occupations. One guy's an attorney, the other guy's a carpenter, but they all showed up every Sunday. You know, that was basically us. And uh, hopefully the, the sport keeps growing. So I'm able, I'm able to talk about it the, way, the same way that those guys talk about the sport now, watching the NFL grow into what it became. Yeah, but for me, it was 100% pride. Both my mom and dad, as you know, I work very closely with my old man and my little brother now, who just joined us about a little over a year ago. Very exciting. And even before that, my mom was in the reinsurance world, and she she did her own thing. She really had a very successful career with uh, Sorima Bukama, then Score, and unfortunately just kind of took a step away after 9-11 and uh, just to spend more time with her kids as they started to enter into junior high and high school. And it, it was just all pride for me. I, I remember the day my dad asked me, and there wasn't even a hesitation in my mind. It was, yeah, let's do this. And when we joined, you know, we had maybe five people in the office, not including ourselves. And now we've grown to two offices, one brokerage, one wholesale unit, uh, multiple different programs, a claims oversight program, a consulting group, and uh, just looking to grow from there. So it's, it's been a very interesting journey and a lot of bumps along the way, but it's really, it's been like everything else in my, in my life. Nothing but hard work. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like insurance was in the blood. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think it made it comfortable, obviously when you're a young adult trying to figure out where you fit in, where you're going to succeed, what are you going to be comfortable in and what are you going to enjoy? I think if you take pride in what you're doing, you're really, you're going to succeed at it. If you don't have pride or you don't like what you're doing, you're spinning your own wheels and it's only a matter of time before two things happen. You fail or you burn yourself out. But if you have at least pride or if you have at least interest in what you're doing. In my case, I have both. I think you can't help but be successful as long as you just show up every day and just put your nose down. Sean, you clearly took the competitive drive from lacrosse and put it into the business world. And I don't think people realize how successful of a producer that you are because in just under five years, you were able to put together about a $3 million book in a really, really strong hospitality niche can you talk about the strategies that you use to grow your book, uh, specifically in the hospitality world? For me, it's, and I know this goes against the old school thought or train of thought or practice of, hey, hammer the phone, hammer the phone, hammer the phone. You're going to hear a thousand no's, but you might hear one yes today. 
now our generation has kind of taken that to the next level. It's like, well, I kind of maybe not want to waste all my time getting all those no's when I could do my time, do my homework, do my research and put together a prospect list of people that I know could use my help or that I'm competitive with and I could offer some type of pricing relief or maybe it's in the form of a better product. Yeah. Sean, if you had to pick a favorite part, what's your favorite part of the insurance world? You mean outside the fact that everybody has to buy insurance? (laughs) (laughs) Very true. No, outside outside the fact that it's a necessary evil and statutory for most businesses to have, um, I really love uh, the people. I mean, just, I mean, look right now, we're talking on a podcast right now. This insurance industry uh, has afforded me some of my, some of my more worthwhile friendships that I have in my life that are impacting my life and the people around me as well. I just think they're, they're relationships of value and we're constantly bringing value to each other's table. Like for you, for the brothers Costello and the, the brothers Brady, for example, we use each other's as, as soundboards, as personal motivators. And we've, I've replicated that same thing that I have with you guys with a dozen other guys. And that right there helps us all grow as a team, even though in some senses, I might even be competing against the guy. It, we're always growing with each other. And that's what it, obviously, I was just going to say real quick, ahead, that, that's what people don't get from the outside looking into the insurance world because they just assume it has to do with their car insurance or their homeowner's insurance or something that they don't yeah. really want to deal with. Give me 15 minutes or more and I'll save yeah. you 15% of their car insurance. <laughs> it's, it's just such a misconception about um, the industry of brokers and underwriters and carriers. And I think you're spot on. I fully agree. It's the relationship business. The fact that we're having this conversation, the fact that we can work together, the fact that we can choose who we want to work with based on the relationship is a super unique thing. And it makes the day-to-day of being in the business so much fun. I don't think people get that. You know, just my clientele. I I, I just have a very unique group of clientele. You do. Through the restaurant and hotel groups. Um, you know, you've seen in every city that we've get, we've gone to, um, at least I have one friend that likes me <laughs> and, uh, we, you know, it's, it's just a mutual respect. I've gotten to know a lot of my clients and some of these clients have kind of, I've watched them start with one restaurant or one hotel and grow to multi-location, just absolute powerhouses. So again, it's the people aspect but it's just a different side of that relationship. Instead of it being with insurance cohorts, now it's with my actual clientele. Obviously they took a little bit of a hit during COVID. So I did a lot more from a relationship standpoint with my restaurant and hospitality clientele than I ever have. It was a constant, my phone has been constantly ringing since, well, the beginning of, well, March of 2020. <laughs> right. Well, Sean, I- I actually think that's a great uh, transition point to the next topic, because as I said previously, I think your story is really one of perseverance, because as a hospitality broker going into the COVID-19 pandemic, I don't know any broker that we work with that was more affected than you guys. And you have one of the most unbelievable stories of 
dealing with the pandemic and pivoting and pivoting extremely successfully. Can you talk about what happened when the pandemic hit and how you guys changed your strategy to um, become more successful than you expected? What we did is we really ran hard and fast into diversifying ourselves into everything from construction and hitting the supply chain for the restaurant and hospitality entities. So meat wholesalers, poultry wholesalers, seafood wholesalers, and hammering those guys, um, trying to round out that chain and then move into other subsectors, going into construction. All right, so we do some big general contractors. Now let's look into Artesian because we see their rate of insurance is pretty high. They're gonna, they probably have some pretty healthy premiums. Let's see who we could help there. Um, so we basically just ran with that. And that was the definition of putting one foot in front of the other and rolling with the ball and evolving and developing with the times, with mandates. Oh, the restaurants are able to open up 50% in this area, but only 25% here. At least they're open. Let's try to get them back on board. Or, hey, maybe this guy isn't ready to reopen. Or maybe he moved to a different spot because the rent at the old place was too expensive. Let's get him on a cheap builder's risk policy and see what we could do for the guy because he needs the cash. So construction really became a haven for success for us. Um, I'd say we've taken down a number of the, some of the larger employers in the tri-state area, just a few, but they were large enough accounts for us that kept us going, kept our prospecting, our marketing efforts, all that seam that we had going into 2020 going. Because, you know, how many times have we spoken at different insurance events or it was just us meeting up and I'm constantly grow, grow, grow. This was a very scary year for all of us. Um, me getting involved with this construction thing was a learning process. Like I said, we developed this, this entire knowledge base, this bank of expertise uh, people that we hire in our staff, we hired strictly because they were very qualified, number one. But number two, they had experience working with restaurant and hospitality groups. Now we, you know, we meet as a team. We try to find out that, oh, Ilka's got, she's got experience in a, a, a myriad of different industries because she used to be the head of claims at her last job. I was like, oh, that's great. So then we start to gain confidence. We started to roll. We start to land a couple of accounts and it took off. Everything is about landing that first one and getting it to roll from there. Learn from your successes, learn from your failures, fine tune along the way. And that has basically been 2020 in a nutshell for Brady Resk. Well, that pivot clearly worked. Can you throw out the stat for the audience that you told me uh, when we were talking off camera about what you guys have been able to do in the last three months based on your pivot? Yeah, we were able to write about at least from what we're able to tell about $3 million in written premium over the last two months. So impressive. Uh, and that was, that was just, that was just the last two months. Um, the months before that, I cannot begin to tell you how many growing pains we had. And it was all came with everybody reeducating themselves, refocusing themselves, people get diving back into niches and specialties that they haven't touched in a year or two. It, everybody played their part and stepped up to the plate. 
So although our clients were operating on survi actual survival margins, everybody saw in the Brady Risk organization the financial impact that a bulk of our clientele what, that they were experiencing. And I think everybody recognized this could directly parlay in a negative way into us. And it's better to be a, in front of the curve than behind it, especially when you're speaking from an operator standpoint during this global pandemic and what has become the COVID-19 crisis. And even above that, losing $130 billion of revenue from year to year, from 2019 to 2020, that's a huge hit to, you, to the U.S. economy that has gone remarkably understated. Totally. And I don't think really anybody has had, I mean, there are folks that have, but in the insurance world, I mean, you've had a front row seat to a lot of this. So I really appreciate your perspective on um, seeing what your clients are going through and um, hearing how it's really affecting them. And obviously, I think we all really hope that uh, this thing comes to an end as soon as possible. But I'm very impressed at how you guys have been able to come through and the pivot that you guys made, um, especially when you've been in such a strong niche for so long. I think it can be um, a little bit hard to shake off the rust in terms of going into a, a new industry segment like that and focusing on a specific product. Oh, I'll tell you what, Pat, it is terrifying because now you're talking to operators who know their industry, their business, their company, their people, in and out, upside down, side to side. They just, they know it like the back of their hand. So to go in and prospect to a guy that maybe does, a, you know, 50 million in sales as a contractor, to go into a guy like that, that's already working in an industry where it takes a, a, a significant amount of grit and just a, a no bullshit attitude and start to sell a guy like that, that's when you know what fear is. <laughs> <laughs> because, because you know you're not going up to bat unless you got a loaded bat. Right. <laughs> but uh, it, it made all, you know what? It, it was an absolute learning experience and it's something that, you know, hopefully just like the PowerPoint, look back and laugh on Right. <laughs> well, and now when this pandemic yeah. finally does come to an end, you have a, another arrow in the quiver if you need it. So I think that that transitions well to really my final question here is what do you think is next for you and Brady Risk? Um, continue to refine the usage of our systems, definitely, especially in the sales department. I really feel like we hit a great flow um, from cold prospect to binding an account. I think we, especially with our younger brokers, it really struck home. It simplified it and made it easy to grasp in a way that they felt confident enough to go out and make legitimately just cold calls and bind, bring it to fruition to bound business. So we're going to continue to figure out what we did right, what we did wrong. But, you know, one thing we're definitely not going to drop the ball on is continuing to diversify and expand our marketing and prospecting efforts. So whereas before we were more concentrated on a restaurant niche, now we're more focused on our anchor product, something that gets us in the door that's providing value off the, off the mm -hmm. rip. 
So, and that's our, that's our workers comp program. So now we get in there and we know that with the amount of public data that's available, that allows us as brokers to basically develop indicative pricing of what we're going to come in at when we offer it to that said cold prospect or whether it's where they're currently or who they're currently placed with, what carrier they're at and doing somewhat of a premium comparison between where we're at, where that incumbent's at, we are able to make such a difference and so much headway in that sales department that it's insane. And it's something that is so simple, but is yet I feel like underutilized by majority of the insurance world. Like I said, this is the last, <laughs> I've said to you before, I should say, this is one of the last surviving industries that is face-to-face -face business. This is very, it's a very relationship-based. There's a whole trust element that comes along with that. Obviously, we've seen guys do a tremendous job in commoditizing insurance. However, typically, the response you hear from the actual user of that insurance product is a lack of understanding of claims, a lack of understanding of customer service, and yet they just know they have insurance. So they know they're covered and they hope they never have to use it. So I think in the PNC side, it's definitely the cyber side because it's so new. There's still some runway left for us to really knock it out of the park and run um, with our respective niches and industries and plans. Well, coverage. Sean, I'm excited to see you guys fly into 2021 and 2022 because I feel like now the sword is sharpened. You know, everybody on the team is aligned. You know how you're going to attack those clients and uh, those prospects um, and really bring serious value to the table. Um, and I really appreciate you coming on here. I feel like you have such an inspiring story, a story of, of perseverance. And um, I really uh, look to you as a role model um, in that sense because uh, some of the situations you brought up, I, I, I personally have never gone through anything close to that. So I think it was really valuable for myself and for our listeners to hear. Uh, but thank you so much, man, for coming on the podcast. And I look forward to coming out and visit you in Long Island soon. Dude, can't wait to have you. You know, you always got a home here. <laughs> All right, Sean. Thanks, man. Take care.